Good evening, my friends, and welcome back to 62 Horror Movies with Josh Hitchens. That's me, where I will be your host for a creepy double feature every night throughout the month of October. Come join me, won't you? It is October 10th, my friends, in our 62 horror movies journey, and tonight is Horror Anthology Night, which I have been greatly looking forward to, because as I mentioned in the very first episode of this project, the th- one of the things I love at Halloween or any time is a horror anthology movie, sometimes called a portmanteau horror film because a portmanteau can open up uh, and contain many different compartments. And the first portmanteau or anthology horror film was Dead of Night, which was a British film that was released in 1945. That is the very first and I initially wanted to include it in uh, this project, but it is impossible to find uh, anywhere. It's not streaming anywhere. The DVD is not easy to acquire and is a weird uh, print of the film. So that's why you're not seeing Dead of Night uh, in 62 horror movies, but I'm cheating and telling you about it now. Uh, But Dead of Night, which was incidentally uh, included in Martin Scorsese's list of the 10 scariest horror movies ever made. Um, Dead of Night is the movie that introduced this format, which has been used so many times since um, to varying degrees of success. But the format of an anthology or portmanteau horror movie is this, is uh, that there is a framing story in which you get a small group of characters together at uh, an unusual, usually creepy location, and there's usually another character that is more sinister than the others, and the different characters that are gathered in this weird location then have stories told about them and then in the film we see the we see these stories um and there's usually between three and five stories in an anthology horror movie um four and five is is kind of the is kind of the average, but sometimes you get one that's only three and is still really good. Uh, So you get all those different stories, all of which are horror stories of many different stripes. And the thing they all have in common is that they all have a big twist ending, a sort of jarring stab of terror um, that you're hopefully not expecting if it's done well. And after you hear all those stories, you go back to the characters in this creepy location, uh, 
that's in the framing story and you understand how all of these stories and all of the characters that um, are in this creepy location are related to one another all comes together in a nice big bloody bow, usually. Um, so Dead of Night from 1945 is the first movie that did that. And if you can find it, I highly recommend you watch it. Um, you know, it's very of its time. There are some, like all anthology horror movies, there are some stories that are better than others. Um, but it's really worth watching. And one person who loved the movie Dead of Night was a writer named Milton Sabatsky. And Milton Sabatsky thought that Dead of Night was just the scariest film, the best film that he had ever seen, and he wanted to do something similar. So he began to write these horror stories. And Milton Sabatsky originally wrote all of the stories that you see in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors um, in the 1940s, actually. Uh, he wrote them for an ill-fated television adaptation of the classic old-time radio horror show Lights Out, which was created and written by Art, uh, Art Abler. And... Uh, so Milton Sabatsky had these stories hanging around for a while. And then in the 1960s, he decided to form Amicus Productions. And Amicus Productions produced these usually lower-budget horror and science fiction films. And as I uh, said when I was talking about The Vampire Lovers, which is a Hammer horror movie, Hammer Studios is definitely the more famous British horror movie studio in the late 60s and 70s. But I personally prefer the Amicus movies. Um, I think they're a lot more interesting, play a lot more with formula and different aspects of creepy things, and also, like Hammer, have lots of great actors, and they share a lot of actors as well. Um, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors is the movie released in 1965, written by Milton Sabotsky, um, from those stories that had been lingering around for 20 years in his head. Um, and Amicus Productions, after the success of Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, released um, more anthology horror films, all of which are worth watching, including Torture Garden, 1967, um, which actually uh, has a major role by Burgess Meredith, who played the Penguin in the 1960s Batman series and uh, was in Rocky and all that. Um, then our second film of the night is actually the next anthology film uh, after Torture Garden that Amicus produced, The House That Dripped Blood. Following that, they produced Asylum and then started adapting EC Comics into movies in Tales from the Crypt and The Vault of Horror. And their last anthology horror movie was From Beyond the Grave in 1974, which, like, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors is kind of hard to find. I don't know why, but Dr. Terror's House of Horrors has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray in the United States. Um, 
while most of the other Amicus movies have been. Uh, it is on YouTube, and I will be sharing that link. Um, it's a really good print, so that's how you can see it. So, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors um, is directed by Freddie Francis. And Freddie Fa Francis is more famous as a cinematographer. He won two Oscars for Best Cinematography. But after he won his first Oscar, he also started directing movies himself. And he directed a lot of horror movies. Um, and he uh, later said, horror movies loved me more than I loved them. Um, which is a little sad to hear. But because I think Freddie Francis was an, a, one of the greatest cinematographers of the 20th century, I think... Uh, even though he didn't really like the horror movies he was making, they're all really great to watch. Um, because he has that eye, he knows the framing and what looks creepy and what will disturb. Uh, he does a great job directing Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Uh, Freddie Francis also worked with my favorite director of all time, David Lynch, twice. Uh, Freddie Francis was the cinematographer for The Elephant Man and also for David Lynch's Disney-released G-rated movie based on a true story, um, the movie The Straight Story, which was actually the final film that Freddie Francis uh, worked on as cinematographer uh, or anything, and it's a beautiful way for him to go out. So the framing device for Dr. Terror's House of Horrors is that it's the middle of the night and all these different men board a train. Uh, and for some reason, they all decide to crowd into one single train car. Looks very uncomfortable. There's not enough room for all of them, really. They're like really squeezed in there. Uh, but one of the men in this train car in the middle of the night is an old man who they find out is named Dr. Shrek. And that is, of course, a nod to Max Shrek, who played Count Orlok in Nosferatu in 1922. Uh, and as I pointed out in that episode, Shrek is the German word for fright or terror. Um, so, Peter Cushing is the Dr. Terror of the title. Uh, and this movie, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, features both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, who were big, big stars at this time, um, due to the Hammer Dracula movies, with Christopher Lee as Dracula and Peter Cushing as Van Helsing, or some variation on Van Helsing. Um, and it's great in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, and I think it's one of the most delicious pleasures of this movie, is you get to see these two great horror movie actors who are world famous by the time this movie was made in 1965 to completely, both of them, play against type. So you have Peter Cushing, who the world knows as the virtuous Von Helsing, playing Dr. Terror, who is the creepy sort of crypt keeper-esque person who, who 
presides over these tales. Um, perhaps the villain, maybe. Watch the movie and find out. Whereas Christopher Lee plays this uptight art critic, like stick all the way up his ass, um, mean and close-minded prick, really. Um, and both of them are playing so much against type, and they both do it so, so well in this movie. Um, but anyway, uh, all uh, those two and several other men gather inside this train car, and then Dr. Shrek falls asleep, and his doctor's bag falls to the ground, and some strange cards fall out of it. And I'm going to play the clip. Uh, right now of what happens after that, which sets up the whole movie. Hey, that's a funny looking deck, man. How do you play poker with these? <laughs> the Taro cards. You are familiar with the Taro? I wouldn't say that, but I've seen the cards before. Dr. Shrek. Doctor of Metaphysics? The science which investigates the first principles of nature and thought. And nonsense. Shrek is a German word, isn't it? It means fright, uh, fear, something like that. The more exact translation would be terror. An unfortunate misnomer, for I am the mildest of men. However, I sometimes foretell things that are frightening. With these? They are the key, yes. The key? The key to what? Ancient wisdom. The Tarot deck is a picture book of life. An answer to the deepest questions of philosophy and history, and sometimes a means of prediction. Like uh, fortune telling? Of a kind. What kind? There is within each of us a twin destiny the natural and the supernatural. The cards are attracted to the supernatural part of that destiny as one pole of a magnet attracts an opposite pole. Supernatural part? The strange, the weird, the unknown, the terrifying, the mysterious. At one time or another during our lives, we may, any one of us, encounter it. This deck can forewarn us. I call it my house of horrors. Which is not at all how the tarot works. Um, but I do have to credit this movie with sparking my interest in tarot. Um, like House on Haunted Hill, which we talked about a few days ago, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors is one movie that I saw very, very uh, late at night on AMC, back when they used to show, um, actually, classic movies. And it really stayed with me. Um, and that concept of the tarot deck depicting these different stories, uh, and as Dr. Terror reads the cards for each of the men in the train car, we see the supernatural destiny that awaits them. And the third card is the one that tells how they're going to get out of it. And 
three guesses as to what that famous card is. Uh, so let's go down the list, and I'll talk briefly about each of the segments that you see. So after the setup, the first story that you see is called Werewolf. And this story, I think, is one of the most atmospheric in this movie. It's set on this eye on this dark uh, island where there's a werewolf curse and an old house, and it just has a lot of really great things going for it. Um, and has a great twist at the end. And I have to say, uh, hats off to Ursula Howells, uh, who plays Deirdre Bidoff in this movie. And she does great things, especially in the final moments of this story. Uh, then you have a story called Creeping Vine, where... Um, an ordinary man with his wife and daughter returns home and finds this vine that they didn't see in the house before, and the vine cannot be killed, and it grows and grows and is eventually going to consume them all. Um, really uh, take on both Little Shop of Horrors and the Day of the Triffids, that idea of a, a plant species becoming sentient and evil and... Will humanity survive that? And the answer is always no. After that, you have a story called Voodoo. Um, and the main person who stars in this story is Roy Castle, who I only know from another Amicus science fiction movie. Amicus actually produced two movies in uh, the mid-1960s based on Doctor Who. And with Peter Cushing as Doctor Who, and Roy Castle uh, as Ian Chesterton, who's one of the Doctor's original companions. And they're really interesting movies to, uh, to watch. It's sort of an alternative canon for Doctor Who. Um, I was a nerd child um, who grew up in the late 80s and 90s, and my mom watched Doctor Who on PBS on Saturday nights, and I watched with her. And you can imagine going to high school and like saying to people, my favorite shows are Doctor Who and Red Dwarf, and no one knows what you're talking about. Um, so it's kind of amazing to me that Doctor Who is the ubiquitous thing it is now. Um, but that... Uh, the 60s weird, worth-watching uh, Doctor Who movies are where I had seen Roy Castle before. And Roy Castle was a sometime actor, but was actually a musician, actually played the trumpet. And you get to see him play the trumpet in Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. The problem is that um, Roy Castle's character decides to... Uh, spy on a voodoo ritual and take some of the music that he heard that night and adapts it into his own composition that he plays in the nightclub where he's famous. And uh, you might be thinking, oh, this sounds very cringy, and it is a little bit. But I actually think uh, the voodoo segment in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors is a remarkably prescient treatment of 
what happens if you try to do cultural appropriation. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to say too much more of that because I don't want to spoil uh, the story. But I actually think vo the voodoo segment deals with this very, very well. Um, and in a way that I think is interesting. And I'm going to leave it at that. Perhaps the best sequence of Dr. Terror's House of Horrors comes next in the story late that is called Disembodied Hand. And in this story, you get two of the true great horror movie actors. You have Christopher Lee as his stick-up-the-ass uh, art critic character, and you also have Michael Gow. Uh, most people know Michael Gell, I think, as being Alfred in the Tim Burton uh, Batman movies. Uh, Michael Gell also makes an uh, interesting cameo in The Legend of Hell House, which we talked about earlier. Uh, but this is really a duel between them, and the special effects of the disembodied hand, although they are crude, I think really work, and it's just a really satisfying tale. Following that, you have a tale that uh, Milton Sabotsky labeled Vampire, and that tale stars Donald Sutherland in one of his first film roles, uh, Donald Sutherland, you've seen him many, many times in Ordinary uh, People uh, as the father, and also in one of the most brilliant horror movies I've seen that is not going to make the list this time, Don't Look Now, from the 1970s. Donald Sutherland um, is one of those great actors, and it's really a treat to see him so young in one of his first roles uh, in which his wife might be a vampire, or maybe not. And then after that ends, you get the epilogue which brings all of these tales together. Uh, so... Where you can watch Dr. Terror's House of Horrors uh, is on YouTube for free, and I recommend you do so, and then we'll come back for our second amicus feature of the night. Enjoy. We are listening to the opening credits of our second feature of the night, another amicus anthology horror tale, The House That Dripped Blood, which was actually entirely written by Robert Block. Robert Block, of course, wrote the novel that inspired Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and the stories in The House That Dripped Blood are all tales that Robert Block had 
published in previous horror magazines like Weird Tales and things like that. And an interesting thing about this movie is that um, the Amicus studio wanted Freddie Francis to direct this film after his success with their previous uh, horror movies, including Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, but Freddie Francis was busy. So the direction of this film was given to a man named Peter Duffel, um, who is not um, as great a director as Freddie Francis is, but does a really great job with this material. And I think it comes from those tales by Robert Block. So in, and it's interesting that uh, the title of this movie is misleading because it's called The House That Dripped Blood, and there, if you watch it, and I hope you do, uh, there is not one drop of blood spilt in this entire film. Uh, the, uh, the director, Peter Duffel, uh, wanted to call it Death and the Maiden, um, based on music that he used for the score, which you just heard, um, but he was overruled. Um, Milton Sabatsky, who is one of the founders of Amicus Productions and the person who wrote Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, uh, literally said, we're in the marketplace. We have to use that title. So they did. And this movie was not a big hit in the UK uh, where it was made, but it was a pretty big hit in America. And I think it has a lot of fun joys in it. And like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, the previous Amicus film that we uh, watched, this film also features Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. So the frame story for The House That Dripped Blood is that there is this old Victorian-looking house where bad things happen. And there's a detective who's trying to investigate what is going on. And then you learn that the <laughs> the realtor who's in control of the house's last name is Stoker, which should be a clue and is a loving uh, homage, I think. And so the inspector tells all the strange things that have happened in this house over the past few years. And we'll go through the stories quickly. The first one is Method for Murder, starring uh, Denholm Elliott, who is one of those actors that you've seen in a million movies. Um, he was in A Room with a View. He was in Hannah and Her Sisters. Um, he's in so, so many things, and brilliant stage actor. Um, also one of um, the actors who died in the AIDS epidemic. Um, but he's a horror movie writer who rents this creepy house uh, because the library is full with old horror books. And he says, this house must have been inhabited by a person of my own heart. And his wife is like, I don't like this. And he's like, no, it's spooky. Let's do it. And 
as he writes his next creepy novel, what he's envisioning starts to become real. Um, this is one of my favorite segments in The House That Dripped Blood, this first one with Denham Elliott. Um, it's one of those that really sticks in your mind. After that, you have Waxworks again, as they all are by Robert Block. Uh, this story first appeared in the Weird Tales magazine, and it stars Peter Cushing, and it involves a wax museum that has effigies that look suspiciously like people who were once alive. Uh that were known by the person who is creating these people in wax. Um, really interesting tale. One of, I think, the highlights of The House That Dripped Blood is the next story called Sweets to the Sweet, and this one stars Christopher Lee, and it is a wonderful witch tale that is very unnerving and well done. Finally, in this film, we have The Cloak, and The Cloak stars John Pertwee, and see, these are all related. John Pertwee is most famous for being the third Doctor in Doctor Who, and it's a treat to see John Pertwee play a different character. Um, he plays a horror movie vampire star, and uh, he's on a film and he wants to be as realistic as possible. And this um, segment also stars Ingrid Pitt, who is from the Hammer Actor Stable, uh, was the lead in The Vampire Lovers that we talked about before, and also Hammer's Countess Dracula. Ingrid Pitt, great actor. She is great in this final segment of The House That Dripped Blood. Um, John Pertwee also went on record later in life by saying that The House That Dripped Blood quote, was meant to be a comedy horror film and was initially filmed in that way. And then the producer came in, took one look at what we were doing, and went raving mad. Um, so they had been filming a comedy with John Pertwee, and then about halfway through, they were told by probably Milton Sabotsky that they had to make it a, a scary horror thing. And so they did. And I think you can see that in this final segment. Um, in the segment with John Pertwee and Ingrid Pitt, you can see these moments where there's an opportunity for comedy um, and sometimes they take it and sometimes they don't. And there's also a deep creepiness to it as well. And uh, John Pertwee actually was basing his characterization on Christopher Lee, who is in this movie. Um, 
and Christopher Lee actually watched some of the filming of this segment and did not get it. Um, yeah. And then, like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, there is a resolution where you understand the secret of the house that dripped blood and why all these strange things happen here. So you can watch The House That Dripped Blood for free on YouTube. It's a pretty good print. Uh, the House That Dripped Blood is also available to stream on Shudder, which I highly recommend. So watch it, and then we'll come back and close out the night. Thank you for tuning in to 62 Horror Movies with Josh Hitchens. That's me. Tomorrow night, we are going to go on a creepy cartoon journey watching the classics. It's the great Pumpkin Charlie Brown and Garfield's Halloween Adventure. Until then, pleasant dreams and happy Halloween.